I went to Accrington Stanley, which is one of my favourite clubs. Andy Holt is a great owner because he understands the intrinsic importance of that club to its community. During the pandemic, looked after the elderly. They basically were, you know, the, 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 the lungs and the, and, and, and the heart of the community. Welcome to the latest episode of The Book Club on Football Ramble Presents. I'm Kate Mason. I'm Jim Campbell. This time out, we start in a toolbox adorned with minor players of Watford Football Club in an uninhabited bungalow as the pandemic rages. Our author is on the hunt for what made him love the game that has sustained his career for over 40 years, a love that has in recent years slipped away. That discovery erects a bridge across the generations and in doing so triggers a journey to explain the humanity at the heart of football. Today for Book Club, we're reading Whose Game Is It Anyway? by Michael Calvin. Let's look at Andy himself as an owner. He's got a similar background to me, council house lad from Burnley. He's worth between 80 and 90 million. He still pays himself every Friday £250 in cash in a brown envelope has wealth, doesn't flaunt it, and actually uses it positively. Yes, we're joined by a writer who has won the Times Sports Book of the Year in two consecutive years, in a week where the failed European Super League has prompted resignations and apology videos like never before from the unaccountable owners of elite football clubs. The nose-to-tail nature of the football that Michael Calvin has lived seems more important than ever. Brilliant news is that he joins us for Book Club here in the studio to talk about his memoir, Whose Game Is It Anyway? Mike, thank you so much for coming in to join us today. It's my pleasure. Should we start by asking then why exactly you started to fall out of love with football? Uh, well, we probably had the greatest example possible over the last few days, haven't we? Mm. When you think about it, um, institutionalised cynicism, um, stage managed contrition, um, hypocrisy, all the good stuff. And I, I saw a game which I fell in love with it as an innocent and because of its innocence, I suppose. Um, now, when you You've been around as long as I have in sport. You know, I, I, I began when dinosaurs were roaming the earth, really. But the, ga- the, the nature of the games have changed in terms of becoming businesses and having perhaps greater social significance than we thought they had 30, 40 years ago. Um, what we're seeing now is sport in general and football in particular highlighting the and almost condensing the ills of an absurdly capitalist society when you think about it and we've got a group of people who seek to use sport entirely for their own ends they've got no feeling for it they have no idea of its social significance and its intrinsic importance to people you know, sport or football, football is family, football's identity, and that is being lost. I mean, I, I certainly felt when the European Super League chat came about that I don't think I've ever experienced anything that wasn't an actual genuine issue in my personal life that has affected me so emotionally. Mm. It, it, it became part of my personal life because it's this, this huge thing that you, you love and it's like someone's trying to take the point away and didn't even certainly made noises as if to give the impression they didn't even realise they were taking the point away because they didn't bother to understand what the point was in the first place. And so much of the book is about reconciliation with with football after, you know, falling out of love with aspects of it because of the symptoms that led to this situation. So how do you feel now after after having written a book where you and football kind of make up almost that then this has come on top has, has it changed has it changed that view or do you are you still feeling rehabilitated almost as a fan no i yeah, there's part of me that is inherently pessimistic but will there be a return to the self-defeating tribalism that has basically characterized modern football and the whataboutery and the you know I'd call them the hysterical high priests of social media all that ignorance, that theatrical ignorance um, is still out there. It's been suppressed. Now, what I would hope would happen, and this is where, you know, I ended the book on a on a, a note of defiance and hope. 
that still endures. You know, I, I was pretty convinced that a Super League or something like it was going to turn up, and so I suppose in life it's better to be lucky than talented. So you know, the the timing of the books. Um, launch was literally on the day the Super League turned up. Um, which At least was, someone benefited, I guess. Well, it's surreal, really. It <laughs> yeah. was surreal. But everything, the, the, the thing that struck me about the aftermath, and Jim, you, you talked there about how it was personal. It's mm. personal. It's not business. It's personal. If you think about the outpouring, the unanimity of negativity was, was fantastic to mm. see because sport by its nature is fragmented and highly emotional and usually illogical. But there was this unanimity of, of, of groupings. It was, the, it was the media, it was fans, supporters, it was the game in general, and, there was, and then it filtered through to the political classes who after decades of using football for, its own, for their own ends decided, oh, this is great headline fodder. We can look that we can look like Robin Hood here. Mm. <laughs> um, but let's condense that. Let's bottle that righteous indignation and use it as a way to go forward in terms of solving the issues that swirl around sport. And it's not just money and greed and the accumulation of power by people who misuse that power. What it's about. It's about the ability to make, and this is going to sound terribly Mary Poppins, but it's actually about we've got a chance here to make things, you know, make everyday life better. Let's use this to attack social media companies who permit ritualized abuse on a daily basis. Let's attack the corporates who use this fantastic thing we call sport and football to push bland brands for their own ends. Let's most of all, let's look at racism. Let's really attack that. And all forms of, of abuse, be it homophobia, misogyny, we've got a chance here. If we get, if we can maintain this momentum and this unanimity there's a chance to really address those type of problems. Now, I know I'm being idealistic here, but if you're not idealistic, what's the point? Mm. Interesting to hear you talk about, I mean, because obviously you've built your career and the writing that you do is about identifying with people and trying to understand how they work and how they're often, you know, some of these books you co-write, we talked about mm. the Gareth Thomas book, um, Proud, about how, what make, how you understand those people and, and getting them to identify with you as well. I'd ask about what you make of, of owners of football clubs, given that we're trying to identify with everyone across all mm. uh, aspects of the spectrum. The fact that this game that so enthralls the three of us and all of our listeners too, presumably, hasn't seemed to manage to touch the hearts of the owners of so many of our greatest clubs. Presupposes they've got hearts. Oh, come on. <laughs> We've all got hearts. But they, you know, they, do, they, they just make the right noises at the right times, right? But how are they not yeah. touched by it? They get to go to the, some of the best games in the world. Can you imagine if we were able to uh, because, flag some yeah, of those because tickets? Because in, in, their, in their mind's eye, they're watching a collection of, of widgets. It is a business enterprise for them. Stan Kroenke has made, he's, he's worth $6 billion now because he exploits sport in an American context, and he's now doing it in, obviously at Arsenal, um, for his own ends. And he thinks nothing of shifting a franchise in the NFL from one city to another. One of the things that really got me about the Super League was the condescension and the disrespect yeah. they showed. You know, talking about legacy fans, are you sure? Yeah. That is appalling because it basically denigrates and degrades the people who actually fund a lot of mm. their wealth. And there's a story I tell in the book. Um, basically, the, 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 the arc of the book, if you like, is, you know, I start off on a very, very personal note with the death of my father-in-law, go back through my own career and my own life to try and find out why I fell in love with football in the first place, why I fell out of love with it, 
gave some idea about how sport can en- can enrich people's lives. It's, it's enriched my. You know, I'm blessed. I'm a council house kid from Watford. I've you know worked in more than eighty countries, and I've been absolutely blessed because it's enabled me to see life in the raw and make almost my own value judgments on how I live my life through what I see. So, you know, we're all the same. And, and so back end of the sort of last third of the book, probably I'm now, I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking for those reasons to still believe. And part of that is, well, I've got a conviction uh, and I try and illustrate that conviction that there are some really good people out there who are doing some fantastic stuff in bad situations. Mm. Football, as Gareth South, Southgate says, great game, shitty industry. It's a it's a people business which treats people by and large terribly. Yeah. So if you then look at it from that perspective, I went to Accrington Stanley, which is one of my favourite clubs. Andy Holt is a great owner because he understands the intrinsic importance of that club to its community. Old Milltown, it's it's a very small club in in many ways, but Small can be beautiful, can't it? You know, their crowd's, what, 3,000 maybe? Yeah. Um, but the way that they have kept, the, the way that they have become a symbol of that community and they're almost like the beat, you know, we're talking about hearts, Kate, that is the beating heart of that community. Uh, you know, you go in, they've just done up some new car park at the back and they've done a, they've, there's a memorial garden to their fans that, you know, people can just sit and reflect on the lives of loved ones who you know, did a lot. Of, you know, and enjoyed a lot of their life at the football club. Yeah. Um, during the pandemic, looked after the elderly, lit- literacy classes. You know, they they basically were, you know, the, the 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 lungs and the and 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 the heart of the community. So let's look at Andy himself as an owner. You know, they're not all ogres. You're right. I think some the people in the Super League pretty much are, but there we are. He's got a similar background to me, council house lad from Burnley. I recognised his hunger because it probably matched my own in terms of wanting to fulfil yourself and advance yourself. He has a company called Wham, which basically makes um, plastic transparent boxes. And... uh, He's worth between 80 and 90 million. There's gold in them, their boxes, you know. <laughs> Crikey. Um, but he still pays himself every Friday £250 in cash in a brown envelope. Has wealth, doesn't flaunt it, and actually uses it positively, mm. very quietly as well. Mm. But his story, I think, sums up the problem that, that we've seen with the, with, with the Super League. In the book, I've called it the curse of the quid. Yes. So, in essence, you know, I, paint, I try to paint a picture of um, Andy as a young man trying to make his way in the world. He was sleeping on cardboard boxes in the garage of his home, making these plastic components, which his wife then put together um, in the house. She's looking after a young baby, bringing his meals over at 2 o'clock in the morning on a tray, because he had to sleep next to the machine because the machine was temperamental. Builds that up and builds it up. He, talk, he talks very emotionally about his father in the book as well and how he never had money. And as a 16-year-old boy, Andy gave his dad £10 for a drink two days before he died. And that stayed with him. With his Welsh, that wealth that he has now gives him a certain sort of social cachet and an entree into certain levels of of business life. Mm. And he told the story of of being down in London at a private members club, and it's one of these sort of business networking affairs. He's he's got three or four guys around him, and and one of them asked him, do you like art? And and he said, well, yeah, not quite like paintings, you know, maybe pick one up at an antique shop, stick it on the wall. Yeah, great. Mm, I bought a painting last week. cost me 23 quid. Now, that painting was by Pablo Picasso. And this guy had spent 23 million pounds on that painting. 
Andy made the important and very timely point, given what, what, you know when we're talking. He said, these are the type of people who've taken control of the Premier League. Right. Mm. He said, look, yeah, they're selfish fuckers. They don't <laughs> care about anyone or anything. And we're seeing that manifested, well, we've seen it manifested over the last week or so. In yeah. that Curse of the Quid, um, I've actually got it open, that chapter, because I really liked the Marcelo Bielsa quotes. Uh, and you describe Bielsa as a, a migrant, an economic migrant to the Premier League. He says, if anything describes English football, it's League One and League Two. If there is anything to distinguish English football, it is the spirit you compete with. This spirit is no better represented than in these lower categories, which seems like certainly he and many of the people that we're talking about in this book are people who recognise the beauty and the worth of the game, which is your point, isn't it? It is. And, I, you know, I love, I love lower league football for its honesty. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, we've, we've all been through really reflective times over the last year or so. And um, this book's probably a product of that. Um, but part of that ref- self-reflection is, I think, a search for meaning in, in, in all sorts of things, in your, in your daily life, with your family, whatever it is. I think people are looking at football perhaps in a different way now because going to a game is, is like anything, it's a habit, and that habit's been broken over the last year. How will the game look post-pandemic? How would it feel post-pandemic? That's still probably to be decided, but one of the things I've picked up a lot on the research that I've done and the personal experience that you know, I'm, I'm sure you guys have had as well is... I've been alienated by the Premier League. A good friend of mine is a West Ham fan, and I'll just about forgive him that heresy, to be honest. <laughs> but um, he was saying the other day, uh, I take my lad to the Olympic Stadium. I have to get a train down, a few beers beforehand, a few beers after, a bit of a lunch or something. So that cost me 250 quid. Bloody hell. Yeah. And... I hate the stadium. And again, like most Premier League stadiums, it's got that superstore feel, isn't it? Come oh, it's horrible. Yeah. And it's such a travesty. Sorry to cut mm, in, but it's such a travesty when you think of, I don't know how much of the Olympics you went to, Jim, but I just have such incredible memories mm. from London 2012. And it's when I it. when I see it, I still think, because I don't obviously have to go there every week, mm. um, but I see it and I think, oh, you know, what a place. So many moments in history yeah. were played here and instead... But isn't isn't that isn't that the point in some ways, Kate? And you know, you talked about whether these people in the biggest clubs, the owners, actually understand football or understand the importance of it. I I love old I love I love old school grounds. You know, I love loved Upton Park. Um, you know, I spent a year embedded at Millwall, and I fell in love with that. Um, you know, the rawness of it and the. Uh, the honesty and, you know, with all the faults as well, there were a lot of warts there as well, but I, I found it a, 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 you know, really emotionally engaging place. You go to any stadium, you know, I talked about Accrington's Memorial Garden. Every stadium, that, and this is the weird thing, every stadium in a way is its own Memorial Garden because every pitch has got people's ashes on, hasn't it? Mm. That is the ultimate indication of what the game meant to that individual that that his or her ashes are in the goal mouth or wherever it is. I love going into stadiums when they're empty because you're almost, in, certainly in my, in my mind's eye, you're communing with ghosts because the place has got a feel, it's got a spirit to it. You go to any stadium, some of these stadiums these days and you think, well... Mm. Well, they feel yeah. old and it's a, it feels bad. It's like, yeah. oh, you've let the seats fade. Or you're not, it's <laughs> supposed to look new and shiny at all times, which yeah. me, which kind of discounts it but from like, ever really I, having any character, like, isn't The it? thing I like about football is I like the dirt. I like, yeah. I like, I like the dirt beneath the fingernails. Well, stuff, these clubs yeah. are hundreds of years old or, you know, yeah. over 100 years old. They should feel that way, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and again, that, I suppose you know, one of the sort of pivotal uh, elements of doing the book was actually going um, to, to bury, to see... To, to see a guy called James Bentley, really good guy. And I wanted to know what it felt like to lose a football club with through no fault of your own, to have it taken away from you. Because I felt that would then give me a real indication of how important, how special and how individual it is. Mm. 
And so we met. I, I was going to go and see the um, uh, Barry AFC in the afternoon. So we met um, at Bolton Street Station uh, in Barry, which has a, a sort of steam train that goes down the valley, and it's it's a bit Hogwartsy, you know. Um, and when we got to when we got there, it was eleven o'clock in the morning, and um, there was a bar. There was a bar on on platform two. So we sat on platform two in these sort of trestle tables. Uh, and oh, they were, right in the station. Got it. Yeah. Right. So, uh, well, you know, that's it's. You might as well do the interview in the stadium, but uh, in, in the station rather. Yeah. There were a couple of, of across from us who I have to say, if you're out there, massive respect. It's eleven o'clock on Saturday morning, <laughs> no. and they've got these flagons of lager. Like <laughs> they must have had four pints in each. It was just like. Wow, you know, I come, I come from without glorifying it. I come from Fleet Street when it was actually yes. alcoholically driven. Well, we've had Julie Welsh in here, and she, oh, she made was us right. drunk she just chatting about time. it. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it's fairly full on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, you know, God, I've got some stories about that. But it was, it was, it was. I, you know, I, it was. I'd never met any supporter who'd spoken about his relationship with the game and his club with such emotion and with such clarity and with such empathy and with such wistfulness, I suppose. And it was like talking to someone about losing a lover. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, um, it was really, really emotionally affecting. And I knew at that moment, in fact, that gave me the idea to do this documentary I've, I've done with Tom Boswell and, and, and BT Sport called Ours, where we're looking at fan ownership and everything else. That moment really got me because it, it contained all the elements that, that I look for in football. There is history. On that same platform, the Berry team went down to, left to go to Crystal Palace for the 1903 FA Cup final. They won 6 0, came back, local heroes. That's still remembered. You know, that's 118 years ago. It's still remembered. It's a source of civic pride and a common cause. So that's one thing about football. Second thing about football, as I said earlier, is family. That was the platform on which his great, on James's great grandfather went to war, a guy called Thomas Watts, in 1914. He came back in 1919 because he was taken prisoner in Germany. Now, indirectly, he passed his love of football to James down the generations through grandfather, father, kid. So we've got the the family element of it. Basically, football for James was, you know, it enabled him to actually almost follow the path of his own life. Quite and, and actually, quite literally, when you think about it, he said, "Look, he knew every paving slab on every street that he walked down to the ground. He had a ritual that was butchered because his club had been been." usurped by malign owners who didn't care for him or thousands like him. And the impact of, of it was, was really profound. You know, he knew to the minute he could, he said, I heard the news at five past 11 one evening that we've been kicked out of the league. He couldn't go to work the next morning. He, he was just sick to his stomach. Now he fell into this, emotional abyss for a year until actually he found the Phoenix Club, Barry AFC. He didn't want to read about football, didn't want to watch football. He didn't do his three quid at Acker on a Saturday. He was completely and utterly bereft. And I say it was like a relationship ending, mm. a really fundamental relationship ending. So that really made a big impact on me because in conjunction with going to Bury AFC, it proved me that there is a rebirth that can be achieved. Obviously, for the book, you've done a lot of soul searching as, as people have mm. in general over the pandemic but obviously with, with stories like this and the, and the way football's, football's going, you've, you've turned the sort of lens back on your own beginnings in football and there's a really interesting bit at the beginning, where you talk about being in hospital with tuberculosis, which sounds like absolutely no fun. And to create your own fun, you created your own league tables with something called Rub Stud Soccer. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds like a fun, it's almost like a 
precursor to Sabutio sort of thing. Is that fair? Kind of. Uh, it's probably fantasy football. Fantasy. Yeah, fantasy it, football. It, it, more fantasy it, it, football. Literally, yeah. it, it literally is fantasy football. You know, I uh, and I basically recreated it, um, uh, the old first division of the of that that yes. season, but out of schoolboy malice. I binned Leeds United because I couldn't stand Ben Revy. And and put Watford in there. Watford in there, as per usual, was struggling manfully somewhere down the pyramid. And um, it's, yeah, I suppose that, you know, when you look back, this is, a of all the books that I've done, this is obviously the most personal. And I, I was paranoid about not coming across as being a bit self important because. Okay, what we do is, a, is an amazing privilege, um, but it's not rocket science, is it? We're not saving lives, so I, you know that's why I know this is part memoir, but I I, I didn't want to do a like you know the traditional on our wonderful autobiography. I just didn't think that's appropriate. But to make the wider point, I had to look at myself mm. and my experiences, and I've been really lucky to have some pretty amazing experiences, but. I suppose in that hospital, you know, it is an you know an isolation ward is what it what it says. You know, you're on your own pretty much. And I, I you know, put the my football posters up and, and, and all that sort of stuff and played that game. But I also I just done my O levels and uh, it's just literally about a week into my A level course courses, and I I was reading a lot of Dickens at the time. Uh, because I love the the reportage. That makes sense. You know, yeah, carry on. I, I think him and, and Orwell, actually, George Orwell. I I, I love Orwell's um, uh, things like you know, Down and Out in Paris and London, yeah. which, which which again probably informed my style yeah. without me knowing that, that. And I had two newspapers uh, delivered every day. Um, one was the Daily Mirror, which was um, a a really intelligent working class tabloid at the time and you know, it was the, the first editor of whom I was aware was a guy called Hugh Cudlip and he um, in the late 60s early 70s um, basically came up with a concept of the shock edition so or the shock issue where there would be one issue addressed be it child poverty or unemployment or whatever it would be and the it was basically the reader's conscience was bombarded not by statistics but by people by fellow their fellow men and what they what this issue was doing to them and there was a brilliant reporter called uh, John Pilger who um humanized it he absolutely humanized it and, you know they did they did a, I always remember there was a a, a sort of a, a a droney type shot of uh, two terrace streets and uh, there were arrows pointing down to the various houses, and that you know that's Mrs. Bloggs, and that's Mrs. Smith, and that's Mr. Jones, and they had their stories coming off that, and that blew me away because I actually then had an insight into people's lives, mm. and I suppose that's why I want to try and write as the way I write is that I want to try and give people almost like open a window up a bit, mm. you know. The, the second paper was the the Mail, and I did that for the sports coverage and specifically uh, their columnist. Ian Waldridge, and I first became aware of him at the uh, Munich Olympics with the Munich Massacre, and his columns were just sensational, and I cut them out. But also, he, you know, he pricked pomposity, uh, and as the, you know, is probably one of the great um, fortunes of my life that he, he became a bit of a mentor and a friend, um, and he used to do the sort of stuff I ended up doing, you know. He did the Cresta Run, so I did that. I did the Cresta Runners uh-huh. in homage to him. He ran with the Bulls in Pamplona. I never got to do that, unfortunately. So I just sailed around the world instead. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was, uh, he boxed Idi Amin uh, in, you know, the Ugandan dictator. Um, but also, and this is where probably we had something in common as well, he absolutely excoriated apartheid. Mm. Not from, you know, a nice little cosy study in London somewhere. He was right in the middle of it in South Africa. And I that was, again, an inspiration for me. One of the few, few times I've actually taken sides was when I covered the Rebel Cricket Tour 
of South Africa and uh, the, the Mike Gatting tour in um, uh, 1990, just before uh, the release of Nelson Mandela. And, you know, I was pretty well briefed by the anti-apartheid movement over here, a guy called Sam Ramsamy, operate from London. He's now the, you know, the IOC member for South Africa. And it was interesting, the people who were our contacts moved up with the you know, with the ANC uh, and and became presidential advisors, and they were the ones who got me the, 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 allow me in to see uh, Mandela himself. But um, it was a I saw sport there through Woolers and 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 through John Pilger. I saw sports possibilities to actually try and engage people, and so sports not just about goals or runs or pass scores or whatever it is it's about hearts and minds mm. and again going right back to the start of the conversation the people who are infesting football at the moment have not got a clue about that mm. not a clue well we started to get a real sense of what it is that's driven you throughout your career and also how you see uh, the significance of of the job that you do and have done uh, so well for as we know, so many years. We need to get to a quick break now, but when we come back, we'll hear more about about this craft that you've learned and particularly about ad-libbing. That's what I want to know about. Back in a moment. Welcome back to The Book Club with Jim and me and today with Michael Calvin, the author of Whose Game Is It Anyway? Michael, plenty of, of low moments as well as some of these real highs inside uh, your book and, and reinterpretations of moments within, within not just football, within sport generally. Um, one in particular where you talk about your innocence dying hard in the 1988 Seoul Olympics mm. uh, after that's the world's dirtiest 100-metre men's final uh, in history, and then Ben Johnson being mm. uh, having that failed drugs test. And you tell us about how you ad-libbed 1,500, 1500 words yeah. into a news desk. Can you please explain for us all what that process is and how on earth you get to a position where you can do that? Well, it's inscribed in my soul, I know that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was that was, I suppose... A really good example of, of what is actually, to be honest, a lost art now. Mm. Um, I used to ad lib in matches as well. I've, I've, I found it enabled you to reflect the rhythms of the game and um, the, the 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 narrative, if you like. Um, but on that particular occasion, again, uh, Ian Waldridge Woolers um, features heavily because it was his birthday, and it was the only day or the only night we had off in the Olympics. So of course, what did we do? We went on. We went on the lash uh, in Itawan, the sort of entertainment centre where you know all sorts of nefarious activity got on. And we got back into the this press village at uh, about half three in the morning, and uh, the phone started going at twenty to four in the morning. Oh, no. um, the the story had gone. So basically, it was um, because of time difference. We were just before first edition, so basically, obviously, it's a huge story, and it's at the other end. It's okay, right, Calvin? Uh, you know, you got to do the overview. What does this mean? Da da da. You know, sport, sport in flames, blah, blah whatever you want to do. Uh, I'll put you onto copy, which is straight away. What just like that? Like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I suppose there, what you're doing is is almost. You're having a conversation with yourself in many ways. Mm. You, you know, writing's a weird thing. Mm. You know, I sometimes, well, I, I regularly, I haven't got a clue what I'm going to do when I sit down. Mm. Um, and I, it, also, actually, funny enough, in doing books, I find that I now write really early in the morning. I get up at like half past three in the morning. Oh, bloody hell. When it's completely, you know, my, my study's done, it's, I'm in this like little womb, you know. Is that all from this one incident? It's sort of like a sort of PTSD style thing. You wake up <laughs> yeah, in the night, like you've got to do some copying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, was, it was half past three, same sort of thing, yeah. But I, I suppose and what you then do is you just basically go onto autopilot. The, the, these thoughts come in from all over the place and you're you're almost harnessing your brain in, in a sort That's of weird way. Skill. And how do you structure that? You can't really, can you? Can't, you can't, no, but you the can... thing is, Kate, it just happens. <laughs> it's weird. It is weird. And uh, in many ways, actually, 
the ad lib I found, I used to ad lib under pressure of time or, uh, you know, communications were pretty crap at those, uh, some uh, in, in that era, you know, when we worked in the Eastern Bloc, mm. you know, there were times where all of us would, would wait around in the lobby of a hotel, um, waiting for one phone call to get through. And what happened was, so one phone call would come in and say, let's say it's the Express. Well, the Express guy would get first dibs, so he'd then re- do his report. Then he'd pass the phone to me and I'd, re- I'd do it for the Telegraph. And everyone's listening? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Well, frankly, you know, it's, it's a bit <laughs> like being in the dressing room. If you're naked, well, you're naked, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else is too, yeah. yeah, true. yeah. And, 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 and then the, the Express then sent my copy to the Telegraph and then oh, they okay. sent it to the Times and the Mail and wherever. And uh, so when you're, when you're especially, you know, when, when communications are bad, it's, it's it just get up and gabble, basically. Um, I used to love that. I really did because it was... Um, when 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 you there was always a moment when when you woke when you got the paper the next morning you thought what the bloody hell did I write yeah. you know so that was pretty good and that actually that was also the days where we used to travel back after matches and um, I started off at the Telegraph uh, covering Northern Ireland in in eighty four and uh, you know this is this is an example of what can happen to your copy um, and there's that sort of Jeopardy moment when you pick up the paper the next morning. So we're on a plane on the way home from a game in Paris and uh, I saw a telegraph being passed around the players and I'm thinking, what's all this? And they started coming down and they're saying, God, Mike, it's fucking freezing last night, wasn't it? What's all that about? I'm thinking, it wasn't cold. It's fine. Anyway, it transpired that it was a brilliant old sub at the telegraph uh, called Rafe Botts. And Rafe had a distinctive uh, palette, let's put it like that. All the subs used to go out next door to the King and Keys, which is his little narrow pub. Actually, that was the pub that I got my job in. I did my interview in the King and Keys, one of these very narrow, dark pubs where you stuck to the carpet, so you knew it was a place of, (laughs) of some repute or disrepute. And Rafe's little tipple uh, in the break between first and second editions was a quadruple port and Dubonnet. What is it with these glass. Fleet Street people? It's, you're invincible. <laughs> it's, it's mad. It was mad. Anyway, so he gets back and he's, he's, he's then subbing my rewrite, my second edition rewrite on Good. the match. It's being passed around the plane because Rafe in his great, he's in his cups, let's put it, put it, put it honestly here. God bless him. He'd invented a snowstorm. <laughs> now you can't do that these days, can you? You can't invent no. a snowstorm because people will watch the game and you know, and Sky Sports News. I'll get the three-minute clip and they think, "Well, like, where? where's the snow? That snowstorm snow? was very quick." You know? <laughs> but of course, in those days, it never came across. So that's the sort of thing that can happen when you actually pick up a paper the next morning. It can be fairly diverting. Fake news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Um... The book, you know, covers such a wide range of, of not just time and experience, but also sports. And, and through that, you know, we have some really famous faces pop up in it. And there's a bit, I was almost nervous reading it. So you had the very unique experience of interviewing Mike Tyson in a hotel room when he wouldn't speak to the press from, from the US. And mm. did, what's that like? I mean, is, what a presence Mike Tyson must be. What, what was that like when he was the baddest man on the planet, when he was at the absolute height of his powers? How was that? Terrified. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, in that particular instance, it was before the uh, famous Michael Spinks fight where he basically psyched him out and destroyed him in 96 seconds, I think it was. Um, Mike was brought up on sort of Pathé news reels of Victorian England or you know the early days of boxing, and he thought we were gentlemen. So he would talk to the British press... <laughs> at a time when he wasn't speaking to the Americans. Um, and, you know, we would always go down to uh, this gym in Vegas called Johnny Tocco's, which is just about big enough to have a, a ring in. And uh, he would have, 
he would he would have these he would be knocking these sparring partners about, and we'd be pressed against the wall because basically there was very little room between the wall and the and the and the ring. And he was backing up this when he did back up these sparring partners. He, he had this really high pitched and was like yelp when he when he you know of, of of exertion and we were praying they didn't duck because if they ducked you know the things his punches coming towards us boxing is an amazing sport to cover uh because of the rawness of it and the brutality of it in it's also there's a mental brutality about it but also the characters have got such um stature and and one of the privileges of being around for a while is that the life cycles of your heroes almost match your own because you grow old with them. Ali was a, a good, Muhammad Ali was a good example. I was a, uh, a kid reporter uh, on this uh, a regional group called Westminster Press. Um, uh, he came over to London in 1981. He was basically agitating to get back in the, in the heavyweight scene. And I didn't, Look for it at the time because I was naive and I was overawed. But at that time, there were slight tremors. He was having slight tremors in his hands, which was obviously the first sign of Parkinson's. But he was in his pomp and he did this press conference at uh, the Hilton and then just walked straight out into the middle of Park Lane, stopped four lanes of traffic and held court in the middle of Park Lane. So I dived out and, you know, young lad, sharp elbows, you know, got to got to ask him a couple of questions. But it was 20, 20 years later. And it's funny, enough, this, this is where the sort of Tyson link comes in again. We were in a, a place called Auburn Hills in Michigan covering uh, Tyson's fight against a Polish um, boxer called Andrew Galotta, who surrendered in two rounds. It was just, he just threw the, sold the shirt as fast as he could. Um, and that was for me, the afterthought of the evening because Ali turned up and this was um, four years after the world saw his distress at the um, Atlanta Olympics. And he, he created this, you know, I describe it in the book as a human earthquake, you know, the people screaming and, you know, there's just, it was, it was an event and, the thing about boxing is that you're very close to the ring. So we were on one side and he was on the other side. And he was there to see his daughter, Layla, yes. fight at yeah. the top of the undercard. And I I just zeroed in on him, you know, in terms of just looking at it. I just couldn't take my eyes off him. And when he'd set, settled down and his daughter had appeared, the first bell went. And the moment the first bell went, he just covered his face with his hands like, I'm oh, no, sorry, that's not very good for the microphone, is it? But, you know, he, he, he covered his face with his hands and he couldn't bear to watch his daughter get punched. And that, as it happens, that, that, that went six rounds, the full six rounds. And after every round, he would drop his hands and wipe his brow with a, with a handkerchief. And I just, that really made a huge impact on me because there's the, probably at the time, you know, the most famous man on the planet. But that's what he is. He's a man. He's a human being. And I've got a daughter. I couldn't, I couldn't watch my daughter in a fight. But Could, do you think that was him recognising what it had done to him as well? I think it was probably, that might be breathing a bit too much into it. Maybe, you know, I don't, I don't know. But my, my feeling was it was, a, it was an instinctive and an entirely understandable reaction. That he wouldn't want to do, he wouldn't want to see that. Mm. Um, but that, and I suppose what it what it does, it 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 reinforces one of the because you know people say to me, and I'm sure they say you know to you guys as well, oh, what's it like to meet X or Y? And uh, well, actually, X and Y are like I am. Yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 it's the, quite similar to meeting anyone. To exactly, be honest. Yeah. yeah, and so. You know that's the thing. You know they are they they are capable of doing extraordinary things, but they're actually ordinary people. Mm. You know deep down, when you when you strip away all the celebrity and 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 the superficiality of it, you know they're just like you and me. One thing on the craft um, element of all this, Mike, I really 
I don't know if this is a bit you're desperate to dwell on, but I thought it was quite impressive that you included it. Uh, the sort of self-flagellatory passage where you talked about your writing of Ian Botham's final oh game of Lord, cricket. Yeah. Now, <laughs> the context is that you'd sort of lost your... It was a, another moment where you were kind of... You felt as though you were losing your focus and your fascination, perhaps, with, with what you were writing about, with the day job let's say. Um, but I find it fascinating the way you decided to take us through what you considered to be a quite quite a low moment in your abilities. Was that a conscious decision to, I don't know, were you trying to convey real honesty? Did you want to kind of get that out of you by saying, I recognise this was poor work and I, and I want to evict it? Uh, to be honest, I thought, well, if you're going to, if you're going to open yourself up, you might as, you know, life isn't a complete, consistent bowl of cherries is it you know mm. sometimes you make an absolute ass of yourself <laughs> and i probably oh, I, I definitely did in this in that moment you know uh, the the sort of subtext of it was that um again i did something that would be unthinkable today i went to um my sports editor at the time at the daily telegraph uh, dave david welsh really innov- innovative guy he created the first sports supplement newspaper and um said, look, okay, uh, I want to sew around the world. Uh, I want a year off the diary. And he went, he should, I was expecting him to laugh at me, to be honest, but yeah, he said, okay, all right, fine. Um, so I came back after, you know, what was a pretty fundamental and pivotal life experience. Um, and I couldn't take sport seriously. And I knew I, I was in trouble because, you know, it was, it was a very, very emotionally... Um, a draining exercise in terms of um, being confronted with your own mortality, but also, you know, it's it's weird when you when you're deep in the Southern Ocean, you're never, you're never, you're as far as you'll ever be from what's deemed to be civilization. You're miles away from anything or anyone, yet you're really in tuned, attuned to the world. Mm. It's weird, and and the the sea is not a collection of of, of molecules; it's a living thing. And you get a sense of moods and everything else. So when you've when you've been through those sort of really um, fundamental experiences, to come back and be expected to take top class sport seriously was really really like impossible. To be honest, I came back and I might say my first job was was doing Ian Botham's last game in first class cricket. And you didn't give a shit about it, did you? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was, you know, the Telegraph gave me the entire back page, which was perhaps a tactical error. <laughs> so, you know, the, the next day, you know, every other paper was, you know, hail the conquering hero, you know, <laughs> and I'm going, oh, yeah. And, and well, the headline was Botham exits all paunch. No punch. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I actually cringe when I think about it. But and I absolutely slaughtered him. I absolutely mullered him. I was I was in basically kitten drowning territory, you know. Yeah. And afterwards, when it all came out, again, Woolers came to me and and said, uh, "Come on, let's go have a drink." And he absolutely gave me the most eloquent bollocking I've ever had in my life. We you know, washed down by these gallons of gin and tonic, basically saying, "Look, that yacht race can make you." but it can also break you. You've got to watch yourself. So there was that. And then, um, you know, part of the sort of transitional period was, you know, I, I um, got an interview with Bobby Charlton, who was a childhood hero, and he actually followed the yacht race. He'd actually written, written to us. Um, and that then got me back into the routine of it, I suppose. And then, you know, that was at a time where, uh, you know, the... Because um, no, I missed the first Premier League season, basically, so that was when you know the hype was beginning to be generated by football, and you know, um, off we went, basically, off we went. I mean, it sounds like an incredibly intense experience, and it's a really important part of the book as well, because obviously, that you know, after that sort of thing, how do you reconnect with with dry land as, as much as the sport that's played on it? So. I, I, I want to kind of come back to what we were talking about at the beginning, um, because clearly, you know, you've you've fallen in love with sport very young, had a bit of a moment with it um, when I suppose consistently confronted with your own mortality for however long you're at sea. Because I imagine that doesn't happen just once a day, does it? it? Happens all day, every day. I'd imagine out there. It can do. Um, 
So I, I just want to know, looking back on everything as you have done through the book at, at this point and, and in the context of what we were talking about earlier, because, you know, I think, that, as you say, you talk about a hopeful conclusion and you look, look, look forward and you, and you have effectively reconnected. Is there, with that reflection, is there anything that you, about football in particular now that you think is actually better now than it was then? Looking forward into the future and, and, and you know, keeping that tone of hope. Oh, sure. You know, in terms of performance, it's light years better in terms of physical preparation, mental preparation. You know, it's, it's a completely different game. And um, that's why I, I really, I do enjoy going into training grounds. And I, I, I always feel that's a privilege. You know, mm. you know you've done, I'm sure, okay. Yeah. It's where, <clears throat> you know, there's a phrase I've used in the book where you, some of them are deeply cynical and they just toss it off, basically. They don't care. But you get the ones, um, Deli Ali was one I, I felt was that. Ah, not lazy then. No. And uh, he dances when people don't watch, basically. It was, you know, the little flicks. There was also an example I cited in the book of uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold. The day after they were allowed back into Melwood, was pinging these 70-yard balls like an NFL quarterback. Mm. And he swazzed across one and he sort of bent it into the far post. And he was like, he was a kid. He was yeah. a kid again, you know? And that's what you see. And you you realise when you come close to these guys, when, that, no, when there's no one else there, or maybe a couple of people, but when you're in those training grounds, you actually see how good these guys are. I was hopeless. I was pathetic. Yet I'm watching these professionals. And even, you know, you can go and watch, a, you know, with the greatest respect to the guys, first uh, League One, League Two guys. They are a million miles better than than anyone that you see on a Sunday morning, you know, lumbering through a hangover. You know, they're they're really good at what they do. And sometimes I think we underestimate that. Mm. What a perfect moment to end then, I think, with the the footballers themselves and and how enjoyable they can be to watch and, and the privilege that you've had to get to know such a good number of them and to write about them so eloquently uh, in this book in particular Mike thank you so much for coming in to chat to Jim and me um, Mike's book Whose Game Is It Anyway is out now we'll post a link to where you can get it on our socials but it just remains to say yeah thanks for coming in hope you haven't had too terrible a time ah, got through it haven't we <laughs> <laughs> No, it's great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, Mike said he was running out of voice earlier thanks to the week of the Super League, but we've managed to sustain it right to the end. Let us know what we should read next then. I'm at KVL Mason. Jim's. I'm at Jim Campbell TFR. And we will catch you next time for another episode of Book Club on Football Ramble Presents. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.